Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, we bring you the voice of Caitlin Doyle. In Caitlin Doyle's world, Siegfried and Roy never met. Hegel and Bruegel discuss obscure bagel-like breakfast options, and Paris is more likely a Hilton than the capital of France. But just when you think it's pure whimsy, Ms. Doyle's poetry strikes the deep, true notes of the profound. Please enjoy Caitlin Doyle. Hello, I'm Caitlin Doyle, and I'm happy to be sharing my poetry with you today. I'll start with a poem about the fiction writer Flannery O'Connor. First, I'll just give a little background information about her. She was a Southern writer, and she wrote remarkable fiction, particularly short stories. And two facts about her that might be useful as you listen to the poem are she was a devout Catholic and she suffered from lupus. And also, I should tell you, the poem features excerpts from phrases that are said during Catholic Mass before receiving communion. O oh Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, and but only say the word and I shall be healed. The poem begins with a quote by Flannery herself. Art transcends its limitations only by staying within them. It's called For Flannery and Andalusia. Communion was the measure of your days, the host dissolving in your mouth between hard fact and metaphor, Christ's body no less real than yours and equally unseen. A pair of crutches made your long legs moot, your arms obscured by bands that strapped each crutch to you. Restriction wedged you to routine, the sicker you became. O oh Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. Early mass, each service echoing the last, but only say the word. Sleep came and went. The grass above your grave to be, next to your father's grew, was cut and grew. Pain flared, retreated, rushed. You knew the grace that made it pass for long enough to let you write a little every morning meant you must be blessed, meant each right word absolved you for the way your life kept quiet what your work confessed. No sin was more original than yours, creating lives that couldn't be redeemed except in language only you possessed. The next poem I'll read is called Backward Sonnet for a Forward Thinker. It's literally a sonnet written backwards. So the couplet comes at the beginning instead of the end and it's centered on a scientist. There are moments in the poem when the scientist speaks and those moments are clear on the page but in order to make them clear in the reading, I have a helper here who will read in the voice of the scientist when he speaks in the poem. Backward Sonnet for a Forward Thinker. If only I knew now what I'll know soon. He likes to say. His office is immune to order, his lab the opposite. His team built a molecular machine that walks on strands of DNA. His childhood dream was to become a poet. He gives talks on nanosystems every fall. The hall is packed. Old forms must be replaced. He starts. His intro doesn't change. The past's a wall between the present and the future. Charts and tables fluctuating year to year support his points. He's photographed for time. He whispers to machines that can't yet hear. Turn right, turn left, step back, 
Walk sideways. Climb. The next poem I'll read is called Carnival, and I wrote this thinking about combining darkness and thematic complication with the extreme nursery rhyme-esque sonic simplicity. It's called Carnival. Pretty eyes, he said to you. Let's get tickets. Let's get two. Let's get on the tilt-a-whirl, then watch the house of mirrors swirl. Pretty lips, he said to me. Let's get tickets. Let's get three. Let's get on the zipper wheel, then watch the house of mirrors reel. Pretty here and pretty there, aren't we such a pretty pair? Pick a pretty, make a pass, just be careful of the glass. Pretty that and pretty this, come in closer for a kiss. Now we're double, now we're half, and watch the house of mirrors laugh. The next poem I'll read is a series. It's called The Breakfast in Heidelberg series, and it has five parts. One, Breakfast in Heidelberg. Said Bruegel to Hegel, I brought you a flagel. Said Hegel to Bruegel, what is a flagel? Said Bruegel to Hegel, a flagel's a bagel without all the dough. Said Hegel to Bruegel, thank you, but no. Two, lunch in Hollywood. Said Gable to Hubble, there's a reason, I hope, why you've put your telescope in the middle of the table. Said Hubble to Gable, a closer view is needed when you happen to be seated across from Betty Grable. Said Gable to Hubble, I hate to burst your bubble, but it's her body double. Said Hubble to Gable, that explains the stubble. Three, tea in Eden. Said Haydn to Auden, tea's rather odd in the Garden of Eden. Said Auden to Haydn, because Adam peed in the water it's made in. Said Haydn to Auden, and coffee in Eden? Said Auden to Haydn, it's safer in Sweden. Four, dinner in New Orleans. Said Rimbo to Rambo, would you like to rumbo? Said Rambo to Rimbo, I don't like to rumble with guys half my size, said Rimbo to Rambo. Rumba, you goomba, said Rambo to Rimbo. I don't care for gumbo, but I will split some fries. Five, cocktails in Rome, said Fellini to Houdini. Have you seen my martini? Said Bernini to Houdini, or my peach Bellini? Said Houdini to Bernini and Fellini, your Bellini, your Martini, can't say that I have. Said Fellini and Bernini to Houdini, we left them right here, Harry, when we went to use the lab. Don't you think that's weird? Said Houdini to Fellini and Bernini, they must have disappeared. The next poem I'll read is called If Siegfried and Roy Had Never Met. And it's a poem about the Vegas entertainers, Siegfried and Roy. For those of you who don't know them, their act is famous for combining magic with nature. So they often use animals like tigers and elephants in their show. And one detail that's useful to know while you're listening is that Roy, in 2003, was attacked by a tiger on stage during one of their performances. 
I wrote this poem thinking about what their lives might have been like had they never met, and then using their lives as a way to explore that more general question in all of our lives, the what if, what if we hadn't met this person, or gone to this place, or made this decision. So it's called, If Siegfried and Roy Had Never Met. No flaming ring, no disappearing elephant. Siegfried behind a circus booth in Munich, half an apple on his palm. He holds it out to show the children it's real. See the seeds? Roy at the Bremen Zoo, locking eyes with the tigers, making sounds that straighten their ears. They tilt their heads, their tails craze with flicking. And Siegfried, a silk scarf in his other hand, he whips it through the air until it blurs into a wheel. The apple will be whole again on the count of three. One, two, but an ice cream bell, the children running away, and Roy reaching through the bars. No theater rigged with mirrors, no double-chambered boxes. It's only in Siegfried's dream a trap door opens on him like a mouth only in Roy's dream, a mouth closes on him like a trap door. The tiger's teeth sink into nothing, obscured by smoke. The applause is never ending. The next poem I'll share is called The Doll Museum. It's a sonnet, and I wrote this after visiting a museum with dolls on display from different periods in history. So, for example, the stone dolls Egyptian children played with. And I started thinking about how these dolls compare to the dolls that contemporary kids played with, and the different lessons dolls throughout history have taught kids. It's called the Doll Museum. The stone dolls, excavated from a tomb, are eyeless, armless, heavy for a child to hold not like the dolls that line the room my sister and I share. Their bodies light and bendable, their eyelids mobile, hair so real it tangled with our own at night. But what we learned from them was only life. We never pressed our cheeks to death like girls who played with stone dolls did. The doctor's knife could not have caught my sister more off guard or left me less alone. I had my dolls. Though soon they lay on tables in the yard with price tags. Even then they looked alive, survivors with no sickness to survive. Now I'll, I'll read a poem called A Brief History of Women's Swimwear, and I wrote this after reading about the modern bikini and reading that it was invented in 1946, just a year after the atomic bomb was dropped, and it was named after Bikini Atoll, which was a nuclear testing site. So with that fact in mind, I decided to write a poem exploring women's swimwear, how it's changed over time. It's called A Brief History of Women's Swimwear. Observe the chasm made when the atoms split, a gap between the breasts and pelvis. Where did the fabric that fused the top and bottom go? Once it was seamless, the belly button hid behind it. It stretched from collarbone to calf. 
but sewing scissors were famished for it long before the bomb dropped. Eyes burned through it in ways that had no words. Bikini, halter, thong, as far away as fission and as close. So many summers the body wasn't there, invisible and free to show itself to no one. Then, boom, observe our stomachs, bare. What was cut away dissolved as easily as ash. Our skin remembers only air. Now I'll read a poem called 13. I wrote this poem addressing a girl who has just turned 13. The poem reflects on the meaning of the number 13 in history, myth, superstition, and the Bible, and also its meaning in the life of the girl that the poem addresses. It has a quote from the Bible in it, 12 years they served Chador Laomer and the 13th they rebelled. So it's called 13. There are as many years in you as witches in a coven, devil's dozen, number of steps to the noose, no use to rub a rabbit's foot or knock on wood. You've had one too many birthdays, then you should. Twelve years they served Chedorle Omar, and the thirteenth they rebelled. So you learned to read from the book your father held before the fire, but the thirteenth psalm proved him a liar, and in your heart you said, the multiplication tables must go higher, and then you begin to bleed. Old dress filling with new need, there were twelve branches in your father's book, twelve kinds of precious stone. There were twelve loaves and twelve bright springs, but now there's a month no calendar brings, and now there's an hour, no church bell rings. There were twelve gates and twelve golden cups and twelve fruits in the tree, twelve white pillars and twelve tall suns, but now there's a gate where no boy swings. There are as many years in you as petals on a black-eyed sue, seats at the last supper, spades in a deck, no sense to hang a cross around your neck or throw salt over your shoulder. Your mother stiffens when you hold her. Your mother pulls away and you remain on the steps of the school. She won't come again before the fall begins to turn. It may be too late then for all but snow and nests below the leaves and trees whose shaking is uncontrollable. Give me back the child consolable. Taking your hand may squeeze too hard. Taking you home may not say a word, but always audible. Give me back the child consolable. Always heard your mother invisible as you turn and climb the steps or learn that an eclipse is the moon across the sun or discover that your age is divisible by none or put your clothing on before the mirror. Never nearer as you turn or discern a face ever clearer. What is happening? An opening? A breach? A loop of rope? A door? One step more. The hands can't catch. The hands can't reach. The clock is wound, but you're beyond.
The next poem I'm going to read is a shorter poem, and it's called Afterwards. Ice from an overhang thins and falls, spills the path with wetted light that clouds when we pass in our winter trappings, scarved with cumulus breath, gloved against contact. Fences shed their white at the wind's injunction, what's done is done. And footprints of others show what our own brownly confirm. There's nothing dirtier than noonday snow, despite and because of how bright the sun. The next poem I'm going to read is called First Apartment. It's a sonnet, and I wrote it thinking about how one decision in life often leads to another and then another, and soon one's whole life has taken shape from a series of very small steps. First Apartment. She looked at coffee tables for so long. The choice between rectangular or round, traditional or modern, seemed profound. At last she chose by whimsy. It was wrong and gave the living room a dated air. She had to get a regent chair to go with it, a Queen Anne couch and curio, a mirror framed in beveled bone, a pair of pewter lamps and curtains trimmed with lace. In time, her eyes adjusted to each thing, so what she saw was what her taste became. Her clothes, her friends, began to match the place. She checked the mirror often, polishing the frame until it shone around her face. The last poem I'll read is called Paris. It's about Paris Hilton, and I wrote it thinking about how the meaning of the word Paris has changed so much in American culture. At one time, you would say Paris, and people would think of the city, and now people, especially young people, think automatically of Paris Hilton often. The poem begins with a quote from Paris. I don't want to be known as the granddaughter of the Hiltons. I want to be known as Paris. Once you were a city, the young hearing your name, conjured cafes, the Venus de Milo, love along the banks. Now Paris is your face. What altered so the Eiffel is your long-limbed height, the Seine your rivering hair? Where did the Louvre go, leaving you in its place? Not that you're not art, the angle of your head, your forward hips. You pose in the lobby of the Texas Hilton, hot pink miniskirt with luggage to match. We can hardly help ourselves, eye to belly button with your blank canvas midriff on the magazine shelf. But who pulled your skin so taut? Who spread your easel legs in that stance? No signature tells unless you made your shape yourself, unless your shape was always there, implied in curving staircases and long-stemmed champagne glasses, your father's, father's, father's fantasy, a bellboy dreaming his own hotel. If you saw him now, you wouldn't see him any more than armless Venus, if she met her creator, could embrace him. The bellboy carries your bags for you, watching through the elevator door as you step from view.
Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for Scott McClanahan.